Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is New Hampshire a paranormal hotspot? Is there more activity in the mountains or by the sea? And why? Well, hello and welcome to the 497th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and uh, those pretty local questions, I guess, came from me. Uh, my son, Ben, uh, my partner in the paranormal, is here. Right. And he's about to take over the show. Indeed. I'll take it over and you will have to leave. This evening, we bring you a familiar name in the paranormal field to discuss some paranormal matters from a place that we all love, the state of New Hampshire. And we do welcome your calls this evening locally. The number is 401-766-1240. And from anywhere in the United States, 800-449-1240. And that's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Ryan Mullahy has been studying the UFO phenomenon in the state of New Hampshire and in New England in general for over 14 years. In 2011, he founded New Hampshire UFO Research, which investigates, documents, and preserves New Hampshire's UFO history. The website, nhuforesearch.blogspot.com, includes original articles on historic and current cases and up-to-date UFO news and sighting reports. Ryan has appeared on New Hampshire Public Radio, independent podcasts, and will be a speaker at the 2013... Oh, wait a minute. That didn't happen, unfortunately, because of a fire. I'm referring to the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire, and Ryan can give us an update on the uh, on that uh, event. Anyway, the website again, nhuforesearch.blogspot.com. So, Ryan Mulhey, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Oh, thanks for having me on, Ben. Oh, it's wonderful to have you with us. So, how is everything going with the Exeter UFO Festival? <laughs> um, well, actually, you know, as you <clears throat> as you mentioned, unfortunately, this year there was some you know uncontrollable events. Um, the historic town hall where the festival has been held for five years, or you know, it would have been the fifth year this year, was actually struck by lightning this summer. And which caused a fire and actually caused a bit of damage to the building. So, unfortunately, what happened was um, they initially thought the repairs were going to be done in time to do the festival, but as it drew nearer, it became apparent they weren't going to be able to have those repairs done in time. And uh, they were unable, the organizers, uh, the Kiwanis, were unable to find another suitable venue to, you know, to handle the capacity of people that usually show up. So... So unfortunately, it was canceled. But they do plan on having a 2014, from what I'm told. So looking forward to that. Hmm. Alrighty. So let's uh, get into some cases now. So before we get into more details of these cases, what cases do you have for us tonight? Um, well, I thought you know we could talk about. Um, there's a few cases we could talk about. Um, I recently just did an art research article on. Um, the photograph that was has been known as the oldest known UFO photo, um, and that that photo I did a bit of research into, so we could talk about that. Okay, uh, unfortunately I didn't have a chance to look at the photo. Uh, perhaps you could describe it. Usually we would have put it up on our talking points page, but uh, we got the you know we came in kind of we were kind of running a little late. So. Right. Yeah, sure, no problem. Well, um, it's. It's a picture that has circulated since around 2003 and has been purported as um, the oldest known UFO photo. Um, so I recently did a research article on that, and it unfortunately turned out it looks like it was not a UFO. 
What what does the photo look like? Can you describe it? Sure. Um, well, the initial photo that was circulated was a, you know a, a close up of an object that appeared um, to be in the clouds, and it's a long um, kind of cigar shaped object. Um, so when it first surfaced, that was the only picture, and the story behind it was that somebody had purchased it off eBay and, you know, was claiming that it was a picture of the clouds over Mount Washington, and this was an object up in the clouds, and the person that, you know, purchased it, they claimed they were going to have it analyzed and whatnot, so that was when the story originated, but, um, this was a case that I've kind of gone back to over the years from 2003. Um, you know, I looked into it initially, and then I kind of reached a point where there wasn't much that I could find out about it. But um, after doing some more research into the photograph itself, which was taken on a scientific expedition, it was actually a stereoscopic photograph, um, I learned a bit more information about that, and I actually was able to track down the original photo um, from the New York Public Library. Uh, what year was that taken? Um, I believe it was One of the things in New Hampshire that we were discussing when you were on the show last time was something that Ben and I are very interested in, and that's paranormal hotspots, because we were started primarily as ghost researchers, and we would find that cases would lead us into all over things, the place, yeah, all really. over the place uh, into very often uh, UFO situations, people in the area had seen them while people were having ghost events going on and this sort of thing, and they began to wonder what about what was going on with these uh, flap areas or hotspots. What, um, and so, so you, you said you haven't really found too much of a correlation and uh, I, with some of the cases you've researched in New Hampshire. Is that the case? Um, well, you know, it, it's difficult because, um, you know, with some of the cases that I've researched in New Hampshire, um, there are things that could possibly be of, of paranormal nature that, that are happening in conjunction with the UFO sighting, um, you know, such as the people having kind of a weird feeling or um, the feeling that they're being watched and or hearing noises in their house or things like that. So there are definitely, um, there are things like that that I've come across um, that I definitely take note of that that definitely could be paranormal activity. The tough part with that is, is um, 
you know, where I'm doing research, I'm not uh, investigating cases, I'm not on the ground. Um, it's tough from a research standpoint with that to discern whether that could be just anxiety because of seeing a UFO, you know, maybe the person, you know, because obviously if they're seeing something strange um, that's frightening to them or weird, you know, that could put them in a state where they're maybe hearing, a, you know, a noise at the house but is making them think that it's something more. So it's, oh, sure. It's, yeah, so it's a little bit tough, you know, from a research standpoint. Um, but, you know, there have been a number of things. There have been a number of cases where um, there's been a lot of animal um, reaction. Okay. Okay, um, you know, to UFO events. So, you know, that's something that could be perceived um, as something, you know, a, a paranormal uh, kind of residual of, of the experience that's going on. Well, one of the issues, I think, and Ben may agree, is that when you don't find correlations, a, a garden variety investigator doesn't find correlations because they're not looking for them. Right? Mm -hmm. They're concentrating on one phenomenon. Somebody reports seeing a guy with a long beard and, uh, you know, hair down to his knees and, you know, running around their upstairs hallway or something, and then he runs through the wall. You know, so, you name it, it it's been reported. Uh, but at the same time, somebody down the road is seeing uh, UFOs, and it's not necessarily related to the phenomenon, but the processes may be the same in the area. That's our theory anyway. Um, I'll give you an example, if you wish. Sure. Uh, can you tell us about the uh, Tilton, New Hampshire, police sighting of UFOs in 1974? Sure. Yeah, that's a great case. That I think we touched upon it briefly. Um, we didn't really talk about the details of it, but I think it was mentioned last time. That's a that's a pretty great case because um, in 1974, um, up in the Tilton, New Hampshire area, which is right in the Laconia area, there was a, a UFO flap up there, which went on for a, went on for about two weeks. And there was hundreds of people that had UFO sightings in that area, but kind of the you know the the most significant one was on August eleventh, nineteen seventy four. Two uh, police officers were basically on patrol. It was late at night, and they spotted a UFO and they called it in, and they were watching it for quite a bit. And over the course of the next um, few hours, they were joined by two other cruisers who also observed this UFO. And during this event, interestingly enough, the two initial officers had an audio a tape recorder in the cruiser, and they actually recorded their reaction to what was going on as it was happening. Um, and I was actually able to get a hold of that audio recording, which I was pretty excited about from a mm -hmm. researcher in, in Canada. So that one's pretty, you know, pretty interesting because you have this police sighting that involved, I believe it was five to six, police officers from three different cities, um, and then going from that day forward on August 11th, I think at least up to the 20th, there was pretty much daily reports of sightings from, you know, all over the towns in the area. And funny enough, um, one of the people actually that had saw one of the UFOs was um, the actress Barbara Bel Geddes. Okay. So she was actually in Guilford doing a play and actually claimed to have seen the UFOs too. So... Um, that you know that's a pretty interesting flap because there was a lot of things that came within that short period of time and you know having the the officers involved that many police officers and the tape recording um, is pretty pretty interesting. 
Okay. The reason I bring that up, uh, Ryan, is because uh, I, I happened to look at your your information on that case, or at least you sent us that there, that this occurred. And I looked back in my notes because it rang a bell. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, in the, between the summer and fall of seventy four, I'm, I'm talking specifically about June to November nineteen seventy four. I have in my notes from that period mm-hmm. that there were six reports, six of major to semi-major poltergeist activity within 20 miles of that area, eight reports of red eyes looking in windows, and seven various ghost-type reports. Now, at the time, I didn't make any connection with UFOs because nobody really did at that point that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I thought that might be interesting to look back and you've got these, because, uh, you know, well, you know our theories, you know, you have overlaps of, in our opinion, parallel worlds and, and you've got various events from various realities uh, sharing space when they overlap. So you may have UFOs and ghosts. They aren't necessarily related, although sometimes we find that they are because people see, uh, if you want, occupants of these things, if that's what they are, in the context of ghosts because they don't see the craft. And, you know, the whole business. It all depends how you see them and where you see them and what your attitude is when you do. So th- this, these are possible uh, correlations uh, between events within certain processes. That's our our opinion, anyway. But well, I think uh, it de- depends on the context in which somebody sees this. Sure. Like if somebody s- sees a shimmering figure inside their house, it's a ghost. Or if somebody sees a shimmery figure and there happens to be a ball of light above them, ah, oh, it's an alien. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Ben and I were at the um, UFO uh, conference in Lemonster this weekend, and there was a lot of talk of the Exeter UFO incident, the Betty and Barney Hill incident of 1961. And uh, I understand you recently wrote a rebuttal article to a uh, something the Skeptical Inquirer published. Am I correct? Um, that's an article that I've been working on that I'm about to release. Um, that I yeah I mentioned we can talk about that a little bit. Oh, okay, um, can we, yeah, if we can talk about it. Let's uh, let, let's yeah. do that. It sounds really interesting. What, yeah, sure. Uh, I can give you you know a little sneak peek on that. Um, sure. Basically, um, in 2011, the Skeptical or you know two writers that write for the Skeptical Inquirer, I should say. Um, James McGaugh and Joe Nickel wrote a piece on the incident in Exeter called um, Exeter Explained. And basically in the article they claim that, um, you know, that they have come up with an explanation for what Officer um, Betrand and Hunt and Norman Muscarello saw in the field that night. So um, basically they claim that... um, what the two officers and what Norman saw that night was a KC-97 refueling plane, um, refueling jets in the sky. And so that's basically, you know, the gist of their, you know, their, they've kind of brainstormed and, you know, it's kind of evident from reading the piece that they kind of set out to find an explanation for, for it. And I think that, you know, that's one of the problems, you know, when dealing with skeptics is, you know, if you kind of set out, or, you know, anybody, if you set out to kind of come to a particular conclusion about something, it, it seems like they kind of, you know, wanted to find an explanation and they managed to find one. So, um, basically, you know, what I've done is I've gone through all of the Project Blue Book files for Exeter, um, all of Raymond Fowler's case files on the case, because he was the main investigator on the ground at the time when that happened, and I've basically, you know, just wrote an article and laid out how, you know, what they've said as far as that being a possible explanation really doesn't um, doesn't kind of reconcile with the Project Blue Book documents, all the Air Force documents, um, 
the congressional hearing on UFOs in 1966. Um, all of those things, it just doesn't really, you know, match up there. So I lay that out. Yeah, well, I have to agree with you. Uh, I left, uh, well, well, there's the CICOP, C-S-I-C-O-P, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, which has existed for many years, and I, I used to belong to it in the uh, 1980s, but I left, uh, 70s and 80s, and, and I left it because I didn't think they were honest. As you say, they look for other explanations, which you should, but mm-hmm. they make them fit. Uh, yeah. the, the circumstantial nature of their findings really bothered me. Like as you fitting say. a square peg into a round hole kind of thing? Well, exactly. Except in this case, more like a quadrilateral into a circle. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, but with the matter of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. of a military aircraft uh, doing refueling, uh, I mean, first of all, anybody who doesn't you know, hear or see an airplane and recognize it for what it is, uh, day or night, is, is, uh, they can be misleading, but it's mm-hmm. difficult. Uh, just because that was occurring in the same area at the same time doesn't mean that was what people reported. Well, the thing that's more annoying is these people weren't there and they're saying, well, you didn't actually see that, you saw this. And it's like, well, how do you know you weren't well, there? Well, exactly. And, you know, and, and we run into that all the time, you know, in cases way back to 1974, for example. I people agree. say, well, this is what you experienced in that, that house in Bridgeport in that poltergeist case, Paul. But I say, you know, I was there and you were not. Exactly. And, you know, and let me just add with that, you know, just a couple bulletin points, you know, that I bring up is, first of all, um, Officer Bertrand was ex-Air Force and had done refueling well, in the go. Air Force. So he was a, you know, and he was a police officer, so he was an excellent witness. Mm-hmm. Officer Hunt had been in the Army Reserve. He was an excellent witness. Um, Norman was about to go into the Navy. He went on to, you know, be a veteran in the Navy. Um, very credible young man. Um, so, you know, if you look at the credibility of witnesses, you know, they're all people that lived in the area um, been in the military, familiar with all types of conventional and military craft, being former military and being police that patrol that same area night in and night out. So, you know, that's kind of the first point. And then, the, you know, the next point is is that um, Magai and Nickel, they kind of, uh, they mentioned that this a particular refueling min- mission was looked at by the Air Force. So they do reference that. Um, but then they kind of go on, you know, they still seem to, even though the Air Force decided that it wasn't a refueling mission, because at the time the Air Force looked into it quite a bit to see if it was this particular refueling mission that happened that night. But ultimately what happened is they, when they looked at the records, they realized that all the planes were on the ground about an hour, hour and a half before um, the officer had his sighting with Norman and the other officer. So. Mm. At the time, back then, they were able to rule this particular refueling mission out, whereas, so even with that information being available, Maga and Nichols still feel that this was, you know, a conventional craft, um, you know, that they spotted. So these are, you know, these are all things. And then another thing I want to add is, you know, the officers in Norman make it very clear that this object was 100 to 200 feet above them in the field. And um, Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and I mean, I did a bit of research on KC-97 refueling planes, and, you know, they they typically, you know, they refuel between an altitude of about 10,000 to 20,000 feet. Absolutely. You know, so for me, I guess that's, you know, those are just some bulletin points, and I I just, you know, I feel like, you know, with the witnesses' um, experience, to say that they mistook a plane at over 10,000 feet with their experience or something 100 feet above them, I, you know, I just, I have a hard time believing that. So. Mm. 
Right, 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 right. And uh, apparently there was another incident in uh, Keene, New Hampshire, in 1984. And Keene's a really nice place, too. I, I, I'm just looking over this now. I didn't well, even Mama realize. Mama Nodnock, that's, that's a strange area. Yeah, it is yeah. a really strange area. Keene's really nice, though. It is. Yeah. yeah, but what is the Zeller incident? Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, sure, we can talk about that. Um, this is another, you know, and it's great tonight because I think, you know, we got to talk about um, the Laconia Tilton case and we're talking a bit about instant Nexer and now we're going to talk about Zeller incident you know one thing that all three of these cases have in common is they're all three cases and are you know involved with police officers so you know I think it just goes to show you know that there's a bit of credibility when you look into cases when there's police officers involved because obviously they're you know they're intelligent they're there to observe and report and you know uh, you one wouldn't think they would want to put their job in jeopardy by you know making up stories so i find you know i just find these cases to be great cases because they're they're police cases but anyway um the zeller incident took place in Keene in 1984 it was october 16th and sergeant zeller basically got a call that there was something hovering over Keene, and he really didn't take the he didn't take it very seriously, but he had to go down and investigate it. So he was driving, you know, down to the location where it was reported. And as he was driving down the road, he saw a car coming towards him veer off the road, and the people jump out and point to the sky. So obviously he pulled his cruiser over, and he saw an object floating in the sky over Keene. And the object is pretty, you know, the description is pretty odd. Is It's a cylindrical shaped object that was a whitish color that had kind of rounded blunted ends and there wasn't much detail to it so um they you know officer zeller and the other people were observing this as time went on more people were driving by stopping and looking at the object um you know mufon investigated this at the time and i think they estimated that about 30 people gathered with the officer to observe this thing and so at one point, somebody suggested that he point his, you know, they point a flashlight at or something. So he pointed his uh, light on the side of the cruiser at this object. And as soon as he pointed the light at it, this object started to silently descend as well as travel towards the cruiser and the people that had been gathered there. And so basically a lot of the people started to run and became frightened. And, you know, Officer Zeller just kind of held his ground and, just watched this object fly over his cruiser, and that was pretty much it. It took off um, in the other direction, and they lost sight of it. You know, I'm always interested in cases where people shine lights at these things and they respond. That happened it's a lot. Sort of, yeah, it's, it's sort of like Boston Man County's the third kind. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, definitely. And uh, does that, of course, uh, this, this is wild speculation, but, but does that indicate to you the possibility that these may be uh, drones of some kind that perhaps un unmanned if you want to use the term man yeah it's tough to say because you know i mean uh, as far as um you know if we're talking um drones controlled by you know whether we're talking drones controlled by humans or you know by something else um you know i think that's an interesting theory i mean as far as um, military drones um i don't think at the time you know we that i know of we had any sort of you know drone craft like that that could hover and then as far as you know, it being some sort of extraterrestrial drone. I mean, that's that's a you know definite possibility, um, definite possibility. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we are coming up on a break, but we have something I guess we can think about over the break, and that's 
Uh, one of the intriguing facts I th- find about the New Hampshire UFOs uh, history, Ryan, uh, it was, was the move of the U.S. Air Force's 509th Bomb Wing from Roswell, New Mexico, to Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire in 1958. Now, Roswell, of course, as uh, every schoolchild knows, the 509th was supposedly at the center of the Roswell UFO incident, which involved a 1947 crash of something, and believed to be a UFO. And then within three years of its move to New Hampshire, come all sorts of sightings and the Benny and Barney Hill abduction incident in Exeter, uh, because we were just talking about that with their niece, Kathy Martin, on Saturday. Uh, and I, when we come back from the break, I wanted to ask if you see a connection. And uh, there are many incidents surrounding Pease Air Force Base then and now. But uh, you are listening right now to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON. 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We're right back with our guest, Ryan Mullahy, in just a minute. So stay with us, and we won't, we will continue to like you. Hi, I'm Megan Grady, and I'm inviting you to join YWCA Rhode Island. Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for YW She Shines Radio, a program that celebrates the aspirations and accomplishments of women. For more information, visit sheshines.org. Owen Radio, Owen Worldwide. And we wanted to tell you about several of the charities Ben and I have adopted. Uh, They are largely veterans' charities. Uh, USA Cares uh, provides financial and advocacy assistance to post-9-11 active duty U.S. military service personnel, veterans, and their families. And they are a great uh, charity to support. They, uh, for example, if someone is short on, for their mortgage or uh, some payment uh, who is a veteran, uh, one particular month out goes a check from USA Cares. And there is a donation page. We uh, urge you to visit usacares.org. Uh, donate anything you can or better yet, offer to help uh, yourself physically as well. Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, for those of, uh, of our Canadian listeners and those in the area who have Canadian connections or realize uh, most vividly that Canada has been by our side in the war on terror since the beginning in Afghanistan, uh, we would like to suggest CanadianVeteransAdvocacy.org, a marvelous charity that uh, does a lot of legislative and political lobbying for the veterans there. So please check that out as well. Okay, and also uh, on Saturday in Burrowville, right in our listening area, Burrowville, Rhode Island, uh, there was a, a day uh, for volunteers to come and l- help with the landscaping at the home being built by Homes for Our Troops and Builders Helping Heroes for Kevin and Kayla Dubois. Kevin, U.S. Marine Corps uh, veteran, uh, corporal who lost both his legs in Afghanistan on his second deployment in 2011. So uh, great folks, uh, beautiful houses being built for them at no charge, and we suggest that you check that out too, buildershelpingheroes.org. All right, so let's get back to our discussion with Ryan Mullahy, a uh, well-known New Hampshire researcher in UFO history of that state and some very interesting cases. So before the break, Ryan, we were asking uh, about the um, kind of, the I don't know, again, coincidence, as I said, maybe not a coincidence, but certainly the uh, telling events involved in the move of the 509th Bomb Group from Roswell to Mexico, New Mexico, where the great UFO incident of 1947 occurred, to Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire, where you ended up with all sorts of sightings and things uh, after their move there in 1958. And the thing about the 509th was that they were the only uh, group uh, in the Air Force that was authorized to maintain, uh, to keep, I should say, store uh, atomic weapons at the time. And the opinion of many UFO researchers is that 
whoever this is, uh, aliens or whatever, were very interested in our ability to ha- to, to use these weapons and to, uh, heaven forbid, carry them out into space. So uh, what say you on all that? Sure. Um, well, you know, initially, um, creator of the Exeter Festival and fellow researcher Dean Merchant um, has done a lot of research on this, you know, particular thing. Um, and actually, Peter Robbins, who was at the conference that you were at in Lemonster this weekend, actually presented um, one of Dean's, you know, papers on this topic. So that was the, you know, kind of the first first time that I had, had heard that connection um, was, you know, from Dean. And, you know, um, I started to look into that further. And, you know, you definitely, um, it definitely does seem that, you know, with with the arrival, whether it was a coincidence or it is, you know, pertaining to the arrival of 509th, um, you know, they arrived in, you know, 58, and then, you know, things were kind of re- reaching a fever pitch come 65, 66 across the country yeah. with sightings, but there were a lot of sightings, you know, specifically in New Hampshire in 65 and 66, um, you know, besides the Exeter Sighting. There were a lot of other sightings by police officers on the Exeter Force um, besides that sighting, too. So, you know, um, I definitely think that it's, you know, I think it's an interesting connection. And, um, you know, I think that th- there's a lot, you know, from my research at Project Blue Book, there's a lot of really, um, there's some really good sightings that are documented from P's, some of which even have radar and ground confirmation. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, it's once again, it's tough to to say for sure. But um, you know, I definitely think there was an increase in sightings there. Whether that was because of the arrival of the five hundred ninth or not, it's it's tough to say for sure. But it appears that way. Well, to narrow that question down a bit, uh, our good friend Stanton Friedman, the grandfather of ufology, as he's known, has sort of a of a saying that he uh, always always uses, and that's that. Uh, if you were an outsider looking in on us, you would find a primitive species whose primary activity is tribal warfare. And I think that describes, unfortunately, humanity pretty well. Do you think it is uh, uh, one of the motivations, you know, not to assign human motivations to non-human species, but, you know, there are... This, this People do it anyway, so... Well, you know, Ben, the, you're right about that. But, but the whole idea of self-preservation, I would think if there's any quality that is common to all life forms, no matter how alien they may be, or no matter what the, uh, I suppose almost, no matter what the uh, uh, laws of physics might be in their particular worlds, would be concerned with self-preservation, because or else there wouldn't be any more of the species, in most cases anyway. So, Ryan, do you think that that is, might be a motivation for UFO activity, uh, for watching, or whatever it is they're doing? I do, you know. I, I think I, I think that's a great point, uh, Mr. Freeman, Freeman makes. Is that you know, to a uh, something a species that's more intelligent than us, that's kind of outside of our box, so to speak, looking down in us. Um, you know, uh, our behavior as a whole doesn't you know look very kind of intelligent or well thought out. You know, we're we're very violent as a species. There's a lot of pollution going on on the planet, so. Um, I think that's I think that's a very good you know theory that if there isn't if that's what UFOs are an intelligent species from another planet um, I think that they probably know enough to you know keep a distance um, but then on top of that 
you know, when we go into the wild and we um, scientifically investigate new species or things like that, we have a, um, a history of basically trying to observe animals in their natural habitat without them knowing that we're there so we can truly, you know, kind of gain their natural behavior without them being stressed out about being watched. So, you know, I think that's something to add to the to that, you know, besides the fact that, you know, we are a bit violent. Um, if something is observing us, um, you know, they probably, and it is intelligent, they do know that, you know, they're going to get the best observation by keeping keeping at a distance and not letting their presence be known. So I think those two things come into play. Okay. One of the issues that uh, comes up often, and, and that this, you know, as you know, we've done a lot of work on the Rendlesham, a lot of research on the Rendlesham uh, Forest case in uh, England, where we actually were last year. Mm-hmm. And the whole issue of nuclear weapons and the presence thereof has come up frequently. The... Um, issue of ufos appearing over bases where nuclear weapons are stored and shining lights or beams down into the weapons bunkers and supposedly it's hard to get a story on this, this is all classified but supposedly uh de- deactivating taking or retargeting weapons um, nuclear weapons is really, really disconcerting to me, especially the retargeting part. And we've never been able to find out retargeted to where. Mm. And this has been reported by high-ranking officers, things of this kind of. I, I don't think that's ever happened in New Hampshire, but what say you on that whole issue? Well, I think, you know, nothing, you know, interesting, you know, we have Seabrook right over in, in Salisbury, which is very close to Exeter. Sure. Um, in that area. And so... Um, it's tough because I haven't come across any any very concrete um, sightings that took place like directly over it or anything kind of directly related to Seabrook itself, but it's kind of smack dab right in that area next to Exeter, and there have been a lot of sightings um, from Hampton Beach. Mm. So, you know, on the periphery, there have been a lot of um, UFO sightings in that area of New Hampshire near Seabrook, but I haven't come across anything that is ultra-specific to the actual nuclear facility. Have you found more activity in New Hampshire in, by the ocean or in the mountains, or is it about equal? It's about equal. It really is because, um, you know, there's a number of sightings reported uh, along the border of Vermont and New Hampshire, you know, which would be the western, northwestern part, and then, you know, the White Mountains, and then there's been a number in southern New Hampshire in my area, as well as Exeter and Portsmouth, um, the ocean, you know, in Hampton, that area. So, you know, it's it's safe to say across the board there have been a number of sightings in, in all of those areas in New Hampshire. Well, it seems like there are a lot of these sightings that are by uh, cops, it seems. I'm uh, looking over some of these notes, and apparently there were five cops from three different towns who witnessed a UFO together, and they recorded their experience via tape via tape recorder. You want to talk a little bit about that? Give us some more details? That's actually the one that we were talking about earlier, the uh, the, t- the one, the Tilton Laconia one. Oh, right, 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 right. right. Yeah, right. That's, that's the one, so that one, you know, basically what I had said there, you know, there was, um, it started with two initial cops, and then two other cruisers showed up and they did make an audio tape, which if you want, what I can do is on my Facebook page um, after the show, I will try and get that link up there 
Oh, that so sounds anybody, good. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, if anybody wants to take a listen to it, I believe it's pretty... I It's been a little while since I listened to it. I believe it's about 40 minutes long, so it's just raw tape of them and the cruiser has happened. But, um, but yeah, that was the Tilton case. Okay. What has been going on recently? Is there a, uh, a lull in UFO activity in New Hampshire? Is there a, a boom in the, the market, or what's going on? Um, you know, I... I tend to try and keep an eye on what's, you know, obviously what's going on. I like to look at current cases if I can, if there's information or, you know, but I tend to do more older cases. But, you know, lately there's, you know, there's been some reports. Um, there's been some stuff. I had somebody send me a photo. Um, there's been a few things. But, you know, to be honest, there hasn't been, you know, anything significant, say, like, you know, the incident at Exeter or Betty and Barney Hill, um, you know, there, there hasn't really been anything of that nature for a while. There was one one thing in 2012 where there was a number of UFO reports that came in on 12, funny enough, on 12, 12, 12. Hmm. And um, there was a number of reports that went into MUFON in surrounding towns of a particular area, and there were reports of people seeing an object chased by jets. So... That one was pretty interesting because a good amount of uh, different reports came in on the same night from New Hampshire from different towns. So that that one was pretty interesting um, for that reason. But that was really the only semi-significant thing that I've I've come across recently. Well, just for those who don't know, uh, MUFON or MUFON is the uh, Mutual UFO Network, the acronym for that. It's a very credible organization as far as we've ever been able to see. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, now, one of the things that people sometimes ask, Ryan, is, you know, and, and there are many reports in New England in general, and New England is, is well, a lot of it is, is relatively heavily populated, southern New Hampshire included. Mm-hmm. It's very woodsy and mountains and stuff, but it's still, there, there are quite a few people compared with New Mexico, say, where Roswell was, or uh, Nevada, where Area 51 is supposed to be, where I was chased across the desert by somebody. That's a long story for another show, but uh, what, why... Do you feel, or do you have any opinion on why there would be UFO activity where everybody can see everything so easily? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question because, you know, it's one thing that I've noticed, you know, in just over the time that I've been, you know, doing the research is, is um, and, you know, I've heard a lot of other people kind of comment on this too, is that, you know, back to what we were saying a minute ago, it seems almost that, you know, there's this, there's been kind of a, a lull lately. Not that there's not reports coming in, but if you look back to the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, there were a lot more, you know, kind of significant UFO events going on. And, um, you know, I'm not sure why they would, you know, I would say back to what we were talking about, um, about, you know, why whatever UFOs are, why they're here, and, you know, whether they want to be perceived or not, Um you know, that's another thing that that can get added to that equation because they always manage to be seen enough where people have been talking about them, you know, for thousands of years. But, you know, if we're talking since 1947 for, you know, a good 60 years now. So it's interesting that they always allow themselves to be seen, but it's, it's always very ambiguous, you know. So yeah. it's a good question, you know. I really feel like if it was somebody ultra-advanced and they didn't really want to be seen at all, that they could probably pull that off. So, you know, that leads to the question, you know, why are they letting us kind of get a little taste, if you will, 
um, you know, that's a good question. Well, do you feel, see, one thing we, we always are saying, one of our mottos is that nothing in the paranormal is what it appears to be. One thing that makes me a little bit suspicious is that sometimes uh, you get reports where uh, you're, you're, you've got a populated area and some people are seeing it and some people are not. Sometimes people are looking up and some are seeing it and some are not. Almost reminds you of the miracle of Fatima or something, you know, the same kind of process. So the question is, uh, what we always assume these are people from other planets, or it may be other dimensions, maybe even time travelers, because those are things that our particular framework of reference can understand more, maybe not understand, but can grasp. Do you ever get the feeling that there might be something beyond our framework that is actually going on here, something that we really don't grasp and might have a difficult time doing so even if we knew the facts? I do, I do. You know, I mean, my personal, you know, kind of position on, you know, what UFOs could be is, you know, I have a very open mind to that. Um, I wouldn't call myself a, a nuts and bolts person or, you know, I wouldn't call myself, put myself in one camp. I mean, I'm open to the fact that UFOs could be nuts and bolts or they could be interdimensional or they could be both, you know. So I'm very um, open-minded as to, you know, the different possibilities um, of what what it could be, and you know, to what you just asked, I mean, ultimately, it, you know, I I tend to think that UFOs are are something that right now we just um, we can't necessarily capture with our technology. Okay. Uh, meaning, and when I say capture, I don't necessarily mean capture in the literal sense, but you know, I think that maybe it's something where it's just that far ahead of us where. Our technology maybe has a hard time uh, documenting it, whether it be trying to audio record it or to take pictures of it, you know, with all the reports of people's cameras failing and, you know, cars um, stopping running when in the proximity of UFOs. So, so I think, you know, it might be, it very well could be the case that no matter how hard we try, um, it just may be something that's beyond our perception or only certain people can perceive. Yeah. In your response, you used the A word, advanced, okay? Mm -hmm. And we do that off the cuff all the time, and I often question the context in which we use it. In other words, people often in our culture will use the word advanced, and they'll almost always mean advanced technologically, mm -hmm. mechanically, uh, more gadgets than we have or more knowledge uh, of science or mm -hmm. lead science than we have. What bothers me is I would rather encounter a, a, a people or whatever, or a species that is advanced uh, morally and spiritually, then I would ever want to meet someone who's advanced technologically only. Do uh, you have any thoughts on that? I completely agree. I agree. And I guess when I, you know, my personal interpretation is, you know, when I say advanced, I, I look at it kind of from both perspectives. I look at it as, you know, they're possibly more technological advanced, but also, I think with that would come more spiritually and socially advanced. Um, you know, I, I would think, you know, and this is just my speculation, I agree with you there. I think that they would be way more conscious of, you know, the environment and the universe and, you know, things of that nature than, than maybe we are as a species. So, you know, I think that that is definitely true. I think, you know, advanced, it would be, you know, in a spiritual sense, in a moral sense, as well as a technological sense, hopefully. 
Well, yeah, hopefully is right with a capital H. Uh, I respect that, but I don't necessarily agree with it. Look, look how technology has separated us from each other, even the Earth, from uh, morality and spirituality. I think it, it's a very dangerous assumption to think these people. Maybe they've overcome that. Maybe their motivations are different. Not being. Yeah, because considering that we're using ourselves as examples, which is weird because we're comparing ourselves to things that aren't us at all. Well, we don't know that, and I'll tell you why. What if these are time travelers, Ben? What if these uh, – the, the whole idea of the, – the big one of the big theories of the abduction phenomenon, and we haven't gotten – I wanted to get into that too. We only have a few more minutes, but mm-hmm. – is that there's been genetic manipulation of our species by that species. And unless – and well, Kathy Marden believes that they have – have the technology to split genes and things and to do that and the sort of a hybrid thing and that's that's perfectly possible mm-hmm. but what if that uh, if they don't or if they they choose not to use that then they have to be very very similar to us almost the dna must be almost identical for any blending to occur any breeding to occur now again all wild speculation but again uh i, I just um well, what it if makes me very nervous. Well, what if questions are the worst questions to ask because this is a field where we'll get absolutely almost no concrete answers whatsoever. Well, a field like this, it may be the only questions to ask. Right. So, anyway, sorry, that Ryan, we're getting oh, off no, on one okay. of our philosophical tangents. No, I'm enjoying yeah. it. I'm enjoying it. Okay. Uh, and certainly uh, certainly one of, the, one of the questions we wanted to ask you, too, is uh, historically, and, and you are, uh, you research historic events in New Hampshire, UFO-wise. And I'm thinking of our friend Frank Ficino, uh, from uh, originally from West Virginia, now from Florida, who has uh, has done that as well and has actually written uh, books on the 1952 uh, UFO incidents between the Air Force and these craft, if that's what they are, and uh, shoot-downs that were supposedly occurred and uh, terrible accidents and things of this kind. And I grew up in a town in Connecticut, where the next town over, there had supposedly been a crash of a National Guard jet chasing a UFO in 1952. And when I got older, the kids were always talking about it. Mm-hmm. So um, my question to you is, in your research about incidents in New Hampshire, have you uh, encountered national implications to any of these cases? In other words, they paralleled other events that were going on, or they were chased across from New York or, or Quebec or something, you know, other characteristics that sort of went beyond just the area where they were being experienced in New Hampshire? Um, not a whole lot. Um, you know, the one that keep, comes to mind that we, I think we may have touched upon a little bit the last time was, um, you know, in the the great airship invasion in 1909 that oh, I yeah. researched a bit. You know, that, that seemed to span across New England um, a bit. Um, but yeah, you know, um, a, a lot, I can't really think of any, you know, other than obviously Betty and Barney Hill, I think, you know, that case had obviously had worldwide implications, um, because it was the first documented abduction case. Um, so I think that case has had, you know, worldwide implications. Um, but you know, none of the other ones, um, you know, and funny enough with the incident in Exeter, you know, that one's a strange one because at the time it was, you know, a very popular UFO sighting and event. It was in the papers. You know, Incident in Exeter was a New York Times bestseller. But, um, you know, even with the credibility of that case, for whatever reason over the years, that case has always kind of fallen to the wayside a bit, um, even though it does have a bit of significance, um, like I mentioned before, because, um, you know, the case was entered into the congressional record at the 1966 congressional hearing on UFOs. So, 
you know, I think those are probably the two best examples of New Hampshire cases kind of having a farther reach would be the Exeter case being introduced in the congressional hearing on UFOs and the Betty and Barney Hill case. Sure. Okay, very good. Okay, Ryan, we're almost out of time. A great discussion. And uh, tell us where people can find out more about you. Okay, sure. Well, basically, they can, you know, check out my website, which is NewHampshireUFOResearch.blogspot.com. And then I also am on Facebook. And you can find me on www.facebook.com, and then it's New Hampshire UFO Research. Okay. And then I'm also on Twitter now at New Hampshire UFO. All right. And uh, be sure to keep us posted on progress on the uh, Exeter UFO Festival for 2014. And, I will. Uh, you know, when I if, if next time I talk to you, if I've heard anything, I'll definitely keep you posted on that. That's great. Ryan, thanks again for a great discussion. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Okay. Very good. Bye. Uh, ben, do we have time for uh, one letter? Yes, we do. Okay. We're trying to work these in whenever we can because we have so many. All right. This is, uh, this is a uh, message from Ron in Quebec, Canada. I don't know if it's Quebec City or somewhere else in the province, but here he goes. Just Quebec. All righty. Um, so he, Ron writes to us, Hi, Paul. I'm amazed at your long experience at the well, paranormal. We can skip all that. All right. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Paul, your work on paragice, par, uh, polter, poltergeists is unique yeah, and, ground, and groundbreaking. My question is, how do you keep a parasite from becoming a poltergeist in a very angry household? Okay. Well, for anybody who listens to the show, uh, the parasite that he refers to are the beings we believe are responsible for our folklore about evil spirits and demons and things of this kind. I've run into them in over the last 40-plus years uh, frequently. Ben has two. They appear to be non-human. They are not spirits in this classical sense of the word because that's the best way we can describe these things because we don't understand them. Uh, I believe they are trans-dimensional physical beings because I've had physical altercations with them. And they feed upon, this is all wild stuff, but this is what we found. They feed upon the negative energy that people produce when there is anger and fear and this sort of thing. And that's putting it a little simplistically, but it's basically how it is. That's how they live. So the and we've often pointed out in cases where, when it started out as footsteps or something, the classic beginning of, of a case. And then as people get more annoyed or fearful or the thing feeds upon the angry, nature of the family life, say, for example, and the stress, uh, it will get stronger and stronger, and it can, uh, if it comes to that, become a poltergeist, which is German for noisy spirit, and these things can actually create great physical uh, damage in a household. And I've seen this too. I've been injured by them on several occasions, and this sort of thing. It's not not a pleasant experience. No. And it's, um, it's more or less unusual for them to get that far, but it does happen. Uh, we suggest that people displace the negative energy with positive energy, and I really can't put a scientific finger on negative and positive energy, but certainly these things feed upon the negativity of anger, fear, uh, sometimes stress. And the question arises, would uh, every family has a certain amount of wear and tear and stress, and everyone has problems in their lives. How come everyone is not afflicted by these things? Well, sometimes, you, as Ben pointed out on last night's show, sometimes you can be and not really know it. Yeah. Uh, at other times, it's very obvious, such as these poltergeist activity situations. So what um, you want to do, of course, uh, is is to bring in positive energy to displace the negative energy. We, we jocularly refer to it as the Peter Pan syndrome, the Peter Pan theory. Think happy thoughts. Because it really does work. 
positive, especially love and humor and good things of that kind, really do repel these things. Apparently, it seems to cut off the food supply, and uh, the the best thing to do is to uh, is to pull together, uh, to stand shoulder to shoulder, to tell your loved ones that you love them, and if you have problems in your family, work them out, and and. Whether people are imagining the thing or not, you can't imagine a poltergeist because it's pretty obvious. But you know, it's good advice for any family in any situation to uh, to build that unity. That's the thing. Well, I mean, that's it's one thing to say that, but it's very hard to put it into action. I mean, it has to be on everybody else to actually agree that they want to do that. Well, it implies certain actions on on the part. We are a very uh, as. Funny, we were talking with with Dave Richards, our, our station manager, before, and he was mentioning that selfishness can be a real problem. Yeah. And uh, in our society, and uh, if we can just start to overcome that, to realize, and that this can take a lot of spiritual work, to realize that you find yourself by forgetting yourself. Mm-hmm. It's one of the paradoxes that the multiverse is full of. You. Accept yourself and then forget about yourself. That's how you find yourself. You don't, and, and, and I think down deep we know that, but we chase more gadgets, more money, more stuff, uh, and, and we, we are never satisfied because we cannot find satisfaction in self. We find it in others. Marriages fall apart or don't even take place because people love themselves through each other. They don't know how to love each other. So, so we're really at, at square one here in this society. We're a bunch of children who never get any older than 12. Let's start to overcome that, and then that is the best defense against these negative things. Really, so, so that's how you prevent, a, I guess, a parasite from becoming a poltergeist or even bothering you at all. Right. Okay, so we're coming down to the wire here. A couple of announcements. Uh, ben and I just returned from the first New England UFO conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts, and it was an interesting and very fun experience. We spent some time with many of the UFO greats who are frequently on the show. Uh, we met some local listeners who made some new, and made some new friends. A sincere well done to our good friend Steve Fermani, who organized the event. We did interviews there with Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Marden, Mark D'Antonio, and Travis Walton. Uh, these will be posted as special interviews on BehindTheParanormal.com uh, as soon as Ben has a chance to work with the audio. Right. Uh, visit that very website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 500 free podcasts of all of our past shows. Also, check out our site at uh, www.NewEnglandGhosts.com, where there are case studies and photos, along with articles by my dad. Uh, find my books on Barnes & Noble Nook, e-reader, and Amazon Kindle, but if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will autograph them for you, and you will help us to keep those podcasts free. Also on our sites, you'll find direct links to several charities that Ben and I uh, have adopted, including the ones we mentioned, USA Cares and Canadian Veterans Advocacy. On our CBS radio edition of the show on Sunday, November 3rd in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Windsor, and Seattle, Vancouver, we will talk with Dr. Peter McHugh about the whys and wherefores of paranormal hotspots around the world. So send your questions to us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com or via our show Facebook page. That's right. Yeah, you can always, if you don't have time to send us an email, you can always go on our Facebook page. You can Mm. just search our show name, Behind the Paranormal, with Paul and Ben Eno, and bam, there you are. Like it, and we're done. And next Monday, November uh, 4th, Right here on WON 1240 and ONWorldwide.com, we welcome skeptic-turned-believer Sandra Chaplin. Champlain. Champlain. Like Samuel Dush. I always mispronounce all these names. Uh, For a discussion of life after death. 
We leave you this evening with an old Danish proverb. It is better to suffer for the truth than to prosper by falsehood. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.